Well, good afternoon, everyone. The H1B Guy here. And today, the H1B Guy Live, April 20th, 2022. Today, I'm going to cover more H1B lottery analysis. Dates of filing are going to be used for May 2022's Visa Bulletin, as well as taking your questions and comments. But before we get started, I'd like to ask you, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the H1B Guy channel here on YouTube and like this video so that I can continue to produce more content like this for you. I also wanted to mention the H1B Guy offers a variety of consulting services. I help businesses and individuals solve complex work authorization issues in the recruitment process while bringing awareness to employment-based immigration benefits. If I can help you, please reach out. I'd love to hear how. And you can book an appointment directly with me via the h1bguy.com. Today's live stream is brought to you by Syndesis and Pata Canada, the ideal plan B for high-skilled immigrants currently located in the U.S. whose status may be uncertain, by perm-ads.com, the industry leader in providing a seamless experience for employers and immigration attorneys navigating the complex perm recruitment ad phase of the labor certification process, and by Mob Squad. Are you a technology professional facing U.S. work visa challenges? If your OPT is about to expire and you were not selected in the H-1B lottery, our partner Mob Squad has a solution. Join the squad. Well, it is 19 now days since the electronic, uh, excuse me, the paper application portal for the H-1B lottery um, opened back on April 1st. Uh, giving employers 90 days to submit uh, the full paper petitions. Um, and as we've talked about many times over, but just to do a quick recap again, um, it basically gives employers until June 30th um, to submit the full paper H-1B petition to USCIS. The interesting thing, though, that we saw this year and, and has been covered here um, on the H-1B Guy News uh, for the week ending April 15th, uh, is that USCIS received 483,927 applications. Hear that again. 483,927 applications. And these applications are electronic registrations. So that doesn't mean that there were 483,927 unique names submitted. It just means that employers paid a $10 non-refundable fee to USCIS to submit via an electronic registration process an individual name for their organization. So as we've talked about, the lottery is one of the primary sources of revenue uh, for USCIS, with premium processing, of course, being the first. But when we look at over the last three years now, what USCIS has done with this electronic registration process, um, I can give you 4.83 million reasons why they've gone to this process. And ultimately, they're saving millions on the back end from return postage, which they've gone on record and talked about. 
So I think the thing here that really needs to be like looked into and as we start to dissect it a little bit further, um, we look at the overall selection. So number of cases that were selected, 127,600. And as I've talked about, that basically is USCIS going on record and saying that they only believe that there's going to be about a 66% application rate from these 127,600 names that were selected. Um, and that, if that were to occur, then all 85,000 um, would be issued and um, accounted for. Now, the question becomes are those going to be approved or not? It also is. A question of whether 66% application rate is going to be sufficient enough or whether they won't get to that. So a lot of questions around, does this mean that there isn't going to be a second lottery? And I still am fairly confident as of this very moment that there will be a second lottery. And during last week's live stream, um, I talked about it a good bit. Uh, I believe that that July 22nd, I think that's a Friday, um, is a good uh, reference point if we're looking for a date as to when a second lottery would be held. Um, I, I say that only because June 30th and the way it falls is a Thursday. Um, so that, again, gives them roughly one, two, three, a month to approve any applications that trickle in at the very end of that 90-day period and then at that point they should have an idea of the a number of available h1bs um, that have not been allocated and so again when we start to look at look at these numbers um what does that mean well it means that the usas is fairly confident that um, not every name that was selected is going to file a, a full petition um, so that lends itself to the second and third lotteries that we saw for fiscal year 2022. Uh, it also lends itself to the first and second lotteries that we saw for fiscal year 2021. So a lot of interesting things that have happened this year as a result of this electronic selection, electronic registration. Uh, you start to look at the totality of the numbers. Again, 483,927. Um, that's almost a half a million electronic registrations that USCIS received. Uh, I have absolutely um, no question and can say with absolute confidence that unless something is changed to reform the current manner in which um, USCIS is conducting the H-1B lottery uh, for non-exempt employers, uh, that we'll see over a half a million names next year, if not exceedingly more than that. And so why? Why do I say that? Well, I <laughs> drastically underestimated the amount of registrations this year. Um, I, I kind of laughed at when folks started to throw out 350, 375, 400, but now it's not a laughing matter. It's a reality. And that reality is, is that unless something changes, we will absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt see over half a million registrations next year if they continue along this electronic registration process the electronic selection process and then subsequently allowing individuals to have multiple employers submit their name now that doesn't mean that 
employers are submitting the individual name multiple times, it means the individual is having multiple employers submit their name. And the barrier to entry is very low, a $10 non-refundable fee. And if selected, the value of these H-1B visas, as you can see now, have never been higher. The other thing that I found that was very interesting, when you start to look at some of the data that, that USCIS has initially uh, published for us to review, and that was that there was 30% of that 483,927 applications received. 31% of that number was in the advanced degree category. So that tells me that roughly over 150,000 out of the 483,000 uh, names that were received, 150,017 to be exact, um, were in this advanced degree category. So that means they possess a U.S. master's, okay? When we start to break it down and really get into the minutia of what are the probabilities, the percentages, the likelihoods of being selected, well, 20,000 H-1Bs each year are allocated for that advanced degree category. And so when you say, hey, 20,000 available, 150,017 registrations received, that probability is around 13% of selection. These are international students who came to the U.S. to get a master's degree, and now they have a 13% probability of being awarded an H-1B, irrespective of their country of origin. Just a probability for individuals, international students, who came to the U.S. to get a master's degree, got a master's degree, and may be working under OPT could possibly even be working under CPT, could even be outside of the country. But they have a U.S. master's. They were put in the advanced pool, 150,017 names for 20,000 visas, 13% probability. And then when you look at the other category, the 65,000 available and 333,900 plus names that were put in that category, you start to look at what's their probability, and that's about 19%. Now, total probability, when you say 483,927 and they selected 127,600, uh, that's a 26% probability that USCIS is, is publicly stated. But when we break it down further and we look at these application rates that are at 31% of the to total names received, um, are in that advanced degree category. You know, it's it's something to me when I look at that really comes back to and shows how much this process needs to be reformed. Um, I've spoke out openly on wage-based selection. I've spoke out openly on wage-based selection based on specific MSAs, metropolitan statistical areas. Um, I've alluded to a hybrid wage-based selection process where for each of the levels there would be 25% allocated for the highest earners at each of those levels in specific um, metropolitan statistical areas, MSAs, which are used as part of the demographics to, um, uh, to calculate uh, a lot of the, the, the wage, prevailing wage determinations. Um, so again, when we start to look at this, this is 
very rarely am I left speechless. <laughs> but when we start to talk about almost a half a million names that were received for the lottery this year, uh, it's one of those situations where um, I'm really unsure how we got to this point other than the fact that demand for talent has never been higher. Demand for high-skilled tech talent specifically has never been higher. So what does that mean? I, I think it means I'm really interested to see uh, the registration breakdowns and the data surrounding that. I'm interested to see big tech's hand in it. I'm interested to see the integrators' hands in it. I'm interested to see um, the, the third-party sub-vendors, right, that, that we talk about, the middlemen that we talk about. Uh, because I can tell you who's losing out, and, and that is um, employers who have perm employees working on OPT, uh, working on CPT, uh, even TNs uh, potentially, um, that are looking to sponsor H-1Bs. And when they're looking at uh, probability rates of 26% or somewhere around denial rates, as a whole um, of basically around 80%, um, you begin to wonder even if $10 is, um, is enough. And so I, I think possibly what we could begin to see is a much more significant barrier to entry as it relates to this non-refundable fee. I would not be surprised if we saw an increase on it because very clearly when you have almost a half a million registrations, um, I think USCIS could pretty much charge whatever they wanted. I think they could go all the way up to $100 per individual that was non-refundable and um, big tech, integrators, middlemen, and even mom and pop employers are going to pay it. Why? Because the value of that resource the skill set of that resource, the training that's been involved in that resource, okay? Or even the, the potential to hire that resource in a more long-term capacity significantly outweighs a $10 non-refundable fee or even a $100 non-refundable fee. And so think about that. If, if, if there were to be some sort of increase, and let's say it was $100, USCIS is still going to get 200,000 plus applications. And this in and of itself will fund the USCIS to eliminate the processing delays that are being created, not only in H-1B, but employment-based um, in all of the various visa categories that we continue to see these expansive processing delays um, that have continued to be experienced as we've emerged out of this post-pandemic world. And so... Uh, you know, the data does not lie, and we'll definitely be drilling down more into this as, as USCIS continues to publish the data and make it public for us to review. Uh, but if I'm one of the 127,600 and I have an employer that's willing to submit my name, I'm working very closely with them right now to make sure that that happens and that it happens well in advance of, of June 30th. Uh, with that being said, would like to ask you, if you haven't already, make sure you like this video. Uh, please subscribe to the H1B Guy channel here on YouTube. Click the bell for notifications so that you're notified anytime we go live like we have here today on April 20th at 2 p.m. Eastern. Or we post new content or new videos to this channel. If you're looking for ways that you can support the H1B Guy platform, you can do so 
through uh, do so currently through the super chat function here on YouTube. Um, any contributions that are made are reinvested directly back into the technology that helps bring you um, two to three videos a week here on the H1B Guy YouTube channel. Uh, if you are watching or listening to this at a later date via the H1B Guy podcast, um, there are ways to support the platform outside of that. Uh, you can check in the video description here on YouTube, um, or if you go to the h1bguy.com um, on the about page, there is a tab to buy me a coffee. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash the H1B Guy. Really appreciate everyone who's taken time to join me here this afternoon. Of course, if you have questions or comments, I already see several of those in the chat. Um, would love to have a few more. I definitely plan to get to those um, here in about the next uh, 10 minutes or so. Um, so please feel free to drop those in and uh, and I'll do my best to answer those and, and clarify those as, as I can. Last Wednesday, before the live stream last week, the May Visa Bulletin dropped. Um, they've been pretty consistent over the last three months with these Wednesday drops of the, the Visa Bulletin. Um, I didn't cover it in the H-1B Guy News last week, but on Thursday, on April 14th, uh, USCIS did announce that they would begin accepting for May uh, dates of filing. And so... What's really interesting is that um, I believe every month so far in this fiscal year, USCIS has accepted dates of filing for employment-based preferences. Um, I personally, as long as I've been tracking this, I've not seen it go this far into the fiscal year. Um, usually it was like October, November, December. Sometimes it went into January, February, only a couple of times in the last four or five years that it do that. Uh, but it's really interesting to see kind of the advancement of uh, the India EB2 specifically uh, for final action and dates of filing, but yet they continue to accept dates of filing um, for uh, adjustment of status applications. And so many of you who decided back in October 2020 to, uh, to downgrade to EB3, uh, to get it in, now we're seeing your your dates come current in, in EB2 and have been stuck with uh, with a pretty difficult decision if it was October 2020 that, that you submitted that downgrade. Um, a few months ago, uh, USCIS has, has gone out and publicly requested individuals that had submitted downgrades um, that did have the, those applications pending to submit the waiver request directly to them so that, that you could apply in, in EB2 for, for adjustment of status. So I think this trend that's really interesting to me is this dates of filing trend. Um, you know, we have we have new leadership that's overseeing the, the, the visa bulletin for the Department of State, but that individual has no impact on what USCIS is going to accept for that month. So this comes back to number usage. This comes back to um, you know the USCIS director Urjadu uh, multiple times has has gone on record and stated the emphasis that USCIS is putting in processing um, employment based adjustments of status specifically EB two. Um, we've seen this emphasis to to do their best to utilize the full allocation. Um, which is again been estimated to be anywhere between 260 to 290,000. Um, 
last year we saw them process at a record pace in the back half of the fiscal year and get somewhere above 170,000 uh, estimated 175 180,000 that they processed last year so the question becomes is this going to be possible for USCIS to process more than 200,000 employment based green cards for this fiscal year for fiscal year 2022 the advancement of these dates, specifically in India EB2 for final action and dates of filing, says that this, this is very intentional effort on USCIS's part. Um, we are now a, a pretty uh, uh, far way away from the rumors that were swirling at the end of 2021, the beginning of 2022, about the possibility of corrective action that could be occurring in April or May. Um, I mean, very clearly we're past that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I believe based on everything that we've seen, uh, USCIS is, is, is showing us that they intend to process as many numbers as possible. So with that being the case, that also leads me to believe then that the Department of State is going to continue to advance the dates um, in a very similar manner. And so it really comes back to what does that mean? Uh, for September. What does that mean for October now of, of 2022 as we start to do this look ahead and we start to try to get a feel for what is this advancement going to look like? And so what I continue to find interesting is the use of the dates of filing chart. And that tells me that advancement's going to continue. And, and I think that we'll see these increments, these 30, 60, 90 day increments occur um, both in final action and dates of filing over the next few months. Um, I think that that'll lead right into the summer months. And, and I think that this will be something that, that should be fairly consistent. But it, it begs the question, is this deja vu from what we saw happen with EB3 last year? And if you remember, uh, EB3 was advanced very rapidly. Once EB1s became current in April of last year, we saw the emphasis put on the advancement of EB3. Um, and then subsequently, November, December, we saw extensive retrogression. So the question becomes, is this going to be something that, that's being foreshadowed here for uh, India EB2? Well, China... EB2, both for final action and dates of filing, has, has not moved now um, for several months. Of course, EB4s uh, for El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras retrogressed significantly. Um, and EB4 for Mexico has been in a holding pattern now for well over six months. So that tells me um, that at the very beginning of the fiscal year, back in October, they had a pretty clear picture of the number demand for each of the categories and that there was a gap for EB2. Um, and so now we've seen this concerted effort to advance the dates and, and to put um, a lot of emphasis and a lot of manpower behind processing these adjustment of status cases for EB2. Um, but again, the, the, I think the thing for me that continues to, to, to be surprising is the use of dates of filing um, by USCIS, and again, that occurring uh, for May 2022. And and honestly, at this point, I don't I don't think that that's going to change um, going into June or July. I, I think we we could possibly even see it go through the remainder of the year. 
but as always, I'll continue to monitor it and keep my eyes on it and keep all of you up to date and up to speed as, as I'm made aware of it. So um, wanted to move into the questions and comments. I know I see several questions and comments at this point. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to drop those in the chat. Um, I want to try to get to as many of those as I can over the next 20 so minutes here. Um, love interacting with all of you. If, if, if you have something that um, that you'd love me to, to address or bring up or attempt to answer, uh, please go ahead and, and drop that here in the live chat and, and I'll be getting to it here shortly. Um, as I mentioned earlier, if you're looking for ways to support the H1B Guy platform, um, the best way that you can do so is by subscribing to the channel, by liking this video. Um, you can also support the H1B Guy platform via the Super Chat function here on YouTube. Um, or if you're watching or listening to this at a later date, um, there's means to uh, to help support us uh, in the video description or via buymeacoffee.com slash the H1B Guy. So let's jump into these questions. Uh, go ahead and post any others that you have, and I'll do my best to uh, to answer them to the best of my ability. Uh, Ramesh Babu asks, can we expect second round lottery this year? Um, I still feel confident in saying yes. Um, I just, I don't see, even though they selected 127,600 names, um, I don't see all 85,000 being issued in this, this first application period. Um, I think through a manner of duplicate selections, I think through a manner of just um, very low application uh, submission percentages. Uh, USCIS very clearly thinks that it's going to be around 66%. So if that number is less than that, um, there's going to be anywhere between five to 15,000 H-1B visas still available um, that have numerical allocations for fiscal year 2023. And those will need to be assigned out. Um, so I, I think, again, as I said, to, to kick off the stream, um, I think July 22nd is a good reference point for a date. Um, it is a month removed from June 30th, basically from June 30th to Thursday. July 1st is a Friday. The 22nd um, is, is roughly a week or excuse me, a month removed. Uh, from that. So I'm still going to hold on to that July 22nd date as of right now. Um, I still am confident that there will be a second lottery, um, but we'll continue to monitor it. And I think we'll know a lot more as we get into the end of June, beginning of July, and we start to look at uh, some of the data that, that, that surrounds the registrations and the selections. Uh, nice Hindi song says, my PD is December 2014. I've downgraded my application from EB2 to EB3 and got EAD AP. Now I'm planning to move to a new employer and shouldn't be able to enter file as EB2 final action date is not correct. And we'll need to go through perm application with new employer. Okay. So now I'm planning to file another 485 with EB2 category in order to get in to EB2Q as it might retrogress in October 2022. Please let me know if this sounds like a good decision. Thanks so much. Yeah, you're changing employers. Um, even though you're on that EAD AP, I would, I would go back through with a new employer, make sure they're aware um, that you'll need to have a new perm labor certified. And then I would go through that, the, the EB2 if you qualify based on the requirements and your experience. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of individuals out there that um, uh, aren't fans of the premium processing in I-140. Your situation may merit that, though. Um, but unfortunately, though, I think the biggest thing for you is how long it takes to get your perm labor recertified. And right now, I mean, I think if your employer started it day one, um, the, the minimum, minimum, the minimum would be nine months. But I, everything right now is taking much longer than that. Um, I think I've seen on average it's taking anywhere between 12 to 16 months to get the new perm labor recertified. So unfortunately for you, that'll be well past that October 2022 retrogression date. Um, but if I'm you, the biggest thing that, that I would advise you to do, um, if possible, is to, to try to maintain your H-1B status while you still have this EAD AP. I think that'll give you the the best um, best options. I'm not sure how much time you have remaining on your current age and if that would be considered a, a transfer situation for you. But I would try to make sure to maintain my H-1B status um, if, if possible. I hope that helps. Um, definitely an interesting situation that you're in. You know, kind of alluded to it earlier. Um, a lot of folks that were in that 2013-14 time frame sitting in EB2, did these downgrades in October 2020, have had their adjustment of status cases pending for well over 180 days, have these EAD APs, and now we're seeing the um, EB2 dates retro, or the EB2 dates advance at a very rapid pace. And now we're in a situation where, you know, you'd be qualified to file under dates of filing. Hey, Anime uh, Grove, did USCIS send all the registrations initially selected 127,600 registrations? The selection notice. If more than 85,000 applications are legitimate, will they issue more visas? No, um, they, they only are obligated at this point to, um, from a numerical allocation standpoint, to issue the 85,000. So my guess is how they will handle this is first come, first serve. <clears throat> so what that means is that those individuals that were notified as selected, the employers, the petitioners that were notified as selected, now are in the process of preparing the paper application and USCIS would just simply go to a first come first serve. Those that get those paper applications submitted in first are going to have priority. Why? Because they'll be processed in a manner. And once that number is accounted for, it's no longer available. Uh, but I honestly don't foresee a scenario, if I'm being honest with you, where even of these 127,600, they're going to have more than 85,000 applications. Um, I, I just I don't foresee that happening. Um, I could be wrong on it, but I think very clearly USCIS is accounting for, um, you know, uh, again, as I said, around a 65, 66 percent application rate already hey sunil how are you what is your prediction for filing data for eb2 india upcoming visa bulls and yeah as of right now if you're asking me for dates of filing uh, for india eb2 
Um, I would think that either February or March of 2015 um, is 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 within reason at this point. Um, so I think that answers it. Anywhere between two to three months. So at the at at the earliest again, you know, we went from September 2014 to December 2014. Um, so I think. I think January is a given, but I think February or March is probably most realistic. What happens if they receive more than 85,000 legit petitions? Will they approve more than the 85K or will they just approve the first 85K legit applications they receive? Yeah, that was, um, you know, what I was saying earlier. I, I believe that what they would most likely do is go to a, a first come first served scenario uh, what i mean by that is that those applications those those paper applications that are received first would be processed first and if once they were approved then that number would no longer be available and i think they would do that up until eighty five thousand were were issued but i honestly don't foresee um a scenario where they won't use all of these um or will they will use all of these in this this first round so i still am, am with a lot of confidence i still believe that a second lottery will be held um, again i've been saying july 22nd but th that could be further out um it could be in in august as well as they work through you know these these thousands of of applications as, as they come in Hey, um, how are you? When USCIS lock date for calculate age for dependent children, is it date of filing, filing date of the I-485 or date of final action? Uh, my understanding is it's date of filing. So it comes back to dates of filing and being documentarily qualified. Okay. Um, so that's a great question. CSP, I believe, is is the information that you're looking for here. Um, but uh, yeah, I believe it's it's dates of filing. But if anyone else absolutely knows, um, you know, please feel free to 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 drop that in the the chat. Um, but I believe it's it's dates of filing. Hey, R, my PD date is 2012 February 15th in eb3 can i expect my date to be current this year please help me with my case that's a good question um i continue to be on record as saying i don't expect um eb3 in any category to advance so if i'm you and i'm sitting there going okay when can i expect some sort of advancement well you're in a three-year gap at this point and or excuse me not a three-year gap 2012 february 15 2012. um i still don't expect any advancement in either final action or dates of filing for eb3 for this year but the good news for you is that you're literally a month away so when and if they do decide to advance the eb3 for final action or even dates of filing um, I believe that, that you'd be right in line, um, when we start to, to look at where you are, cause literally 
you're three weeks away from dates of filing and you're a month away from final action. So when and if they do decide to advance the dates, I believe that your dates would then be current. But as of right now, and I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, and I'm not looking to uh, to preach gloom and doom here, uh, but I think if you just go back to um, some of the chats with Charlie sessions that were taking place in um, his last few, like August, September, uh, maybe even October, he was alluding to um, the demand and the numbers for EB3 significantly outweighed what was going to be available this year. Um, and that's why the retrogression then happened in November. And that's why the dates haven't moved since. And I think that that's going to continue to be the case. Why we have such a high number of registrations? Is this alarming? What do you think the solution for this high number is? Yeah, um, uh, Mayank, that's a great question. Um, why? Well, there's a very low barrier to entry, $10. Individuals, employers submit their name as they're willing to say yes. And then it's reactive, right? Once selected, then an application can be, be submitted. Um, the other thing is for my recruiter friends out there who keep up with this platform and follow this channel and, and the h1bguy.com, um, they know how tough it is right now to recruit high tech here in the U.S. And we just don't have enough. There is not enough human beings with the skills, the tech skills that these enterprise organizations are looking for here in the U.S., and so is this alarming? Absolutely. Um, there's over 2 million jobs currently open um, in tech specifically. Just go to LinkedIn and look at the jobs tab and, and type information technology um, and, and you'll see millions. So is this alarming? Absolutely. What do I think the solution is? I think there's two solutions. Um, I think first you significantly raise the non-refundable fee here as I was um, pontificating on earlier, you, you, USCIS moves that number up to a hundred dollars per individual. Um, I, I think that that will end some of the flooding, but it won't stop big tech. It won't stop the integrators it, and it won't stop the, the third party sub vendors out there because they know even at a hundred dollars, low barrier to entry, extreme value on the return on the investment. I think the solution ultimately comes back to a hybrid wage-based, geographic-based selection based on the occupation level. So there's four different levels, level one, two, three, and four. 25% of all H-1Bs are allocated to level one, 25% to level two, 25% to level three, 25% to level four. And then per the MSA, the Metropolitan Statistical Area, those uh, requests, those registrations with the highest wage and each of those MSAs for the wage levels are what is selected. So gone would be random selection and would be a hybrid wage-based selection and allocation. Um, and this is pretty radical, but very clearly 31% of all applications received were in the advanced degree category. I would really like to see an increase happen in that advanced degree category. If we're going to continue to see a half a million applications 
then ultimately we have to look at a couple of solutions. First, we've got to address the green card backlog and allowing individuals um, to, to get in a line, a first come first serve line. But we also have to look at, hey, if we increase the annual allotment, what's the impact on that? Because there is a, such demand on these 85,000, if more were allocated, would the demand still be as consistent as it is? My PD is March 2015. Can I file I-485 with a new employer without filing new perm I-140 with similar job title? Um, you're probably going to need a new perm certified with that new employer. Um, in fact, I would most likely guarantee that that's going to be your best approach. Um, and your time's coming very quickly. I, I think, you know, you need to take a real look at this because ultimately I think by July, um, March 2015, we'll be up in the visa bulletin. And if they're continuing to accept dates of filing, um, you're going to be right there. So I hope that helps. Um, I've got about four minutes left here. So just wanted to ask you one last time, like this video, please subscribe to the H1B Guy channel here on YouTube. Um, if you're looking for ways to support the H1B Guy platform, you can do so through the super chat function here on YouTube. Um, if you're watching this at a later date, there is ways to support the platform in the video description and also via buymeacoffee.com slash the H1B guy. Hey, Kingslord. Yeah, H2B. I haven't covered the H2B recently. I know that there was a second lottery held that was then finalized for it. Um, I haven't looked at this year's numbers yet, but I can definitely um, try to do an update on that um, sometime over the next couple of weeks. Appreciate you joining in here this afternoon and uh, and taking time to post a comment. Can a GC ED, uh, can a GC green card EAD AP advanced parole for EBT only be applied along with the I-485? Is it possible to get it after I-140 approval? Um, I believe you already have to have that I-140 approved, but um, I, I'm not I'm not 100 sure on on this one. Um, I, I apologize. A lot of the downgrade, upgrade, um, it, it, EAD with advanced parole, a lot of that, that that's come into play over the last couple of years um, has created a lot of gray areas for us and um, a lot of confusion. But I, I believe that in order for you to um, apply that new, I believe you're talking about the new I-485, you'd have to have that, uh, that, that new I-140 um, as well. So, well, I wanted to thank everyone who took time to join me here this afternoon. I just really appreciate your consistent and loyal support. Uh, today's live stream was brought to you by Syndesis and Path to Canada, uh, the ideal plan B for high-skilled immigrants currently located in the U.S. whose status may be uncertain. If you're facing an H-1B denial or OPT expiration, don't get caught off guard. Make sure you have a plan B and Syndesis and Path to Canada are your answers. To find out if you qualify, please be sure to use the link in the video description below and someone from Syndesis or Path to Canada will be in touch. And also by perm-ads.com, the industry leader in providing a seamless experience for employers and immigration attorneys navigating the complex perm recruitment ad phase of the labor certification process. If you're looking to reduce your costs and overhead associated with perm labor certification recruitment advertising, like we were talking about earlier with a perm labor certification and how long that takes, 
Let perm-ads.com help you. And also by Mob Squad. Are you a technology professional facing U.S. work visa challenges? If your OPT visa is about to expire and you weren't selected in the H-1B lottery, our partner Mob Squad has a solution. Mob Squad helps technology professionals facing U.S. work visa uncertainty remain with their current U.S. company nearshore from Canada and technology professionals from around the world who are seeking an opportunity to find a rewarding career in North America. They can help you obtain a Canadian work permit for you and your spouse in as little as six to eight weeks. Whether you're looking to stay working with your current U.S. company or you want to find a new opportunity in Canada, please find out how the team at Mob Squad can help you via the link in the description below. Join the squad. Just wanted to ask you one last time, like this video, subscribe to the H1B Guy channel here on YouTube, and click the bell for notifications so that you're notified anytime we post new content here to this channel. For all of you who have made it this far, thank you so much for taking the time to watch my live stream. Um, to everyone who asked a question, uh, really just appreciate it. Ramesh, uh, Nice Hindi Songs, uh, Enemy Grove, Sunil, Amit, Om, R, Mayok, DV, Kingslord. Thank you guys. Really appreciate that. Uh, with that being said, I'm Robert. I'm the H1B guy, your global source for all things H1B.